When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth, cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. If you're looking to move out of your parents' place, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive, which is good because your little brother has gotten really territorial. You're blood-related. You'd think it would be fine to share food in the fridge. I mean, who writes their name on every individually wrapped slice of cheese, Tyler? Still, you've got to admire the commitment. So bundle your renters and car insurance with Progressive and use the savings to help you move out and have all the cheese you want. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Elijah Wald for a discussion of his book, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. In this episode, Elijah elaborates on the claim of his title and makes his best case for the role of the Beatles as well as other leading musicians of their generation like Bob Dylan and the Beach Boys inadvertently ending the process of synthesis and cross-pollination that led to the evolution of rock and roll. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to the Let It Roll podcast. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and our guest today is Elijah Wald, the author of how the Beatles destroyed rock and roll. Welcome, Elijah. Thank you very much for having me. And so this title, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, the first thing I've got to ask is, was this your title or the publisher's title? It was absolutely my title. I had it before I wrote the book. So this is totally, how much of this is trolling? I mean, because I think you back up this all very well. (laughs) And what was the response? How much has the response been? I mean, how many people have, gotten past the title and and engaged with your actual argument? Oh, lots and lots of people got past the title and lots of people didn't. I mean, if you go up and look at my book on Amazon, you will find, I think all of the one star reviews are from people who didn't read the book. They just read the title. And I brought that on myself with that title. Um, People who read the book I would say divide pretty evenly between people who think that I backed up the title and people who think it was a really bad title because it doesn't actually describe what's in the book. I'd say that's about 50-50. 
But I would argue even a lot of the people who think it's a bad title that doesn't match the book wouldn't have picked up the book if it hadn't had that title. Yeah, and and um, I had read Escape in the Delta and then just found How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll sort of randomly. Uh, and for me, it was just a, a really enjoyable book. And, a, and again, like Escape in the Delta, a paradigm changer because it changed completely how I thought about what is essentially the thesis is how American music evolved over the last century. Yeah. Uh, and, and But in the course of this, I want to read your thesis statement. In other words, rather than being a high point of rock, the Beatles destroyed rock and roll, turning it from a vibrant black or integrated dance music into a vehicle for white pap and pretension. So, so defend that one. Um, actually, that's not my thesis point. That's how I, the way that is introduced in the book is that has always been an extreme position that some people took. I don't say that's my argument. I do say that's an argument that some people make and that people who write about the Beatles usually are not even aware anyone is saying that, much less think it themselves. Um, no, I mean, I like the Beatles. I particularly like the early Beatles. I, I do think I want to hold your hand. If I had to pick one record, that's my favorite. But Strawberry Fields is a great record, too. Um, I'm not attacking the Beatles. And so what is your thesis? Um, <laughs> if I have to sum up that book in one sentence, the sentence is um, the problem with pop music history as it is usually written, is that pop music is what teenage girls like to dance to, and its history has almost all been written by guys who had no dates in high school, so they hate popular music. <laughs> this is this is very true, and I think that your book um, was an influence on a generational shift in pop criticism, where now there's this sort of positivism, I believe is what they tend to call it, where Poptimism. Uh, Poptimism, exactly. And do you feel like I, that... so, I should just say, I was that book was very much in tune with the zeitgeist. I did not start the Poptimist thing. I mean, Carl Wilson had already written his book on Celine Dion, which was very influential. I think for a lot of people, much more influential than mine, partly because it's a much shorter book. Um no, there were already people going there. I just went deeper into the history and took it further back. And really, to me, opened up a whole new world of artists to consider and listen to and think about, uh, you know, when we're trying to put together the history of, of the 20th century in music. And I think an alternate title could have, of this book could have been Paul Whiteman was the king of jazz. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't have sold a lot of books. No, <laughs> maybe in 1935. But so tell us a little bit about Paul Whiteman and and how he's analogous to the Beatles in some way. Yeah, that was that was sort of for me, that was sort of the central analogy of the book. That if you had asked the average white person in the United States or in England in 1925 or 1930 even, what is jazz? Um, they would have described it as what Paul Whiteman did. 
And if you'd asked who's the biggest star in jazz, they would have said Paul Whiteman. And if you had asked who's the most innovative, who's the most experimental, the most, you know, who, who's making the most artistic jazz, they would have said Paul Whiteman. Um, he was like the Beatles. He simply defined what mainstream jazz was and also defined what highbrow jazz was with Rhapsody in Blue, um, which I, in the book, suggest is sort of a, the 20s version of Sgt. Pepper. I mean, it, it's what makes everybody go, and when I say everybody now, I mean middle-class intellectual white people, go, oh, that isn't just stupid teenage music. This can be serious art. Um, and what happened that's interesting to me is that the way the history got written was that jazz remained the name for both the white and the black music. And so we talk about Paul Whiteman in the same category as Louis Armstrong and in the same category as Count Basie. And as music kept moving forward, more black music became more and more and more prominent. And after a while, Whiteman just sounded sort of pale and dull next to the Louis Armstrong Hot Five or the Count Basie Orchestra. Whereas what happened in the rock and roll era was that we started out with Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and this very integrated scene. And as the white music got more, in quotation marks, artistic with Bob Dylan and the Beatles, the black music was simply filed in a separate category. So nobody asks, you know, when you put on a rock record, would you prefer to put on Sgt. Pepper or James Brown live at the Apollo? One of those we call a, a rock record and the other we call a soul record. And so nobody ever asks. So were the Beatles as good as James Brown? Um, Certainly not as influential on the future of American music. Well, I'm not going to say certainly not as influential. They're very differently influential. Um, they, you know, James Brown was incredibly influential. The Beatles were pretty goddamn influential too. Um, hard, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, as with Paul Whiteman, and that's one of the things. It's not that Paul Whiteman's influence has disappeared. Every time you hear a film soundtrack, you're likely to hear tastes of the sort of mix between classical and pop sounds that Paul Whiteman invented. But, and, and you let's know. Let's tell people a little bit yeah, more yeah. about Paul Whiteman, because I think to people of my generation, a lot of people listen, you, you might, if you know anything about Paul Whiteman, you know three things. One, he was called the king of jazz, and he wasn't. Two, he introduced Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. He commissioned Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue and, and introduced it. And three, he introduced Bing Crosby uh, as, as a vocalist. And, you know, Crosby becomes the first singer to master microphone singing and the first crooner completely changes the way people sang. What else did Walt Whiteman do? Oh, God. Um, well, before all the things you've described, he was already the most popular dance band leader in the country. Um, and he did that 
just by having really, really smart arrangements and hiring an interesting range of musicians. I mean, he hired a mix of all white musicians. We're talking a segregated, intensely segregated era. But he hired the blackest sounding white musicians or the white musicians who had mastered the black styles, people like Big Spiderbeck, most famously, um, Frankie Trumbauer, uh, Jack Teagarden, a whole bunch of people. He, and then he surrounded them with these incredibly expert, classically trained musicians and paid top dollar to get the best arrangers. And he just made records that sounded, if that was what you liked, they sounded incredible. And they were meticulously done. They were always in tune. You know, he was very, very, he, he sort of took the world of mainstream pop music and combined it with this wild sound of jazz. And again, that's like what the Beatles did. You take Little Richard and put it together with a producer like George Martin, who makes sure everything is in tune and everything is smooth and everything is well recorded, and then you add string players to it. And that's roughly what Whiteman did with jazz. Yeah, you describe both of them as, rather than innovators, as sort of rearguard actions for an older music. Can you explain that? Um, well, they were both of those things. In terms of what was happening, if you think of the progress of American music in terms of ragtime goes to jazz, goes to swing, goes to R&B, goes to rock and roll, goes to soul, goes to disco, goes to hip hop, what you're talking about is what's happening in black dance music. And in those terms, both Paul Whiteman and the Beatles were 10 years behind the times. The black dance bands had already gotten ahead of that. But in terms of taking that music and bringing it to an audience that wanted something more, in quotation marks, sophisticated, they also were doing something new and were innovators. So they, they're sort of doing both those things, and that makes them incredibly popular because the kids like them because they've got a version of the current kids' sound. But the kids' parents, who hate the noisy teenage stuff, go, actually, this stuff sounds pretty good because it also reminds them of older sounds. Yeah, and you talk about that, how uh, when music, when there's a new style of music, not only are new innovations added, new qualities are added to the music that people hadn't appreciated in, in previous musics, but qualities that had been appreciated in older musics are lost. And that's a big part of why older fans, and it happens with every generation, you know, this stuff's crap. The stuff I listened to is good because it had this quality or that quality. Absolutely. No, that's, and that's interesting because that quotation that I use in my book is from Charles Rosen, who is a classical critic, brilliant classical critic. And he's actually talking about the problem that people had with Schoenberg and Stravinsky. But it holds exactly the same way for talking about the problem people have with rap. You know, that they start saying, that's not music. Um, what they mean is just like what a Beethoven fan 
here's when they try to listen to John Cage. What they mean is what they mean by music isn't there anymore. And it's much, much easier to accept a new sound being added to what you already like than a new sound that doesn't include what you already like, like not having any melody. Yeah, or or not having complicated harmonic changes, which is musically where the Beatles are different from their contemporaries like Dylan or the Stones, who are pretty much three-chord wonders. The Beatles had this rich harmonic vocabulary that fans of Gershwin and other you know, Tim Pan Alley composers could appreciate. Absolutely. And so one I want to get back to sort of more the overall arc of the book. I mean, obviously the 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 hook is the Beatles. And I think a big chunk of the argument is about Paul Whiteman, but in a lot of ways the book is a survey of twentieth century music. And you argue that technology drove a lot of those changes. Yeah, really the t- the two things that I put centrally in that book and that I feel like it's kind of my contribution is I put the changing technologies at the center and I put dance styles at the center. I mean, people sometimes ask me, you know, why don't you have, you know, your book doesn't even talk about Broadway show tunes. Yeah, that's right. It really is a history of pop music in terms of largely dance music and the charts, you know, what people are buying, what's happening out there Um, in pop terms. And a lot of that is about live music. Then you get records, then you get radio, then you get jukeboxes, then you get long playing records, then you get television. And each of those things fundamentally changes not only that you now have that, but it also changes people's relationship to the previous technology. So when television comes in, it's not only that you can now see stuff on television, it's also that it destroys national radio and radio becomes local and all sorts of music that never really got a lot of radio play before suddenly is on the radio. And that's a huge part of what happens with rock and roll is that suddenly local radio stations are competing with television by playing you music you can't see on television. Yeah, and that's one thing that that becomes clear when you read this, your history of music, is that when when the music technology is stable, the powers that be, the corporations and others, sort of had a handle on, here's what we want to present to people, and here's a format that succeeds. But when these formats are broken down and things are unstable, that's when the music gets great and things get exciting because there's this chance element and uncontrolled from the top. I'm not going to say that's when the music gets great, but that's when weird, unexpected things happen. Yeah, bursts of of innovation and excitement. Yeah. And I want to get to to one fundamental shift that you point out. I mean, there's been a lot of lamentation of about what digital music has done to music as a career, made it much much harder to make a living selling albums. But right in your first chapter, you talk about that the actually the most fundamental shift was from let's see, of all the ways in which music changed over the course sure. of the 20th century, the most fundamental was the shift from being something people played to something they consumed. And from being part of a larger experience to being a thing that is often heard alone and out of any set context. 
And that's literally, it's an obvious point, but it had never occurred to me before that, you know, in 19, in 1890, if you wanted to hear music by yourself, well, I guess by then you had the phonograph, but in 1790, you had to have a group of people there to play for you. You couldn't hear things by yourself. You couldn't listen to a symphony all by yourself. Right. No, no, no. To, as I say in the book, to even play a duet, there have to be two people in the room. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that is, you know, that's fundamental. And the fact that you can't hear anything twice. I mean, I'd never, you know, there's lots that I'd never thought about. One of the things I'd never thought about, if you listen to any piece of classical music from, you know, from the, the classical era, from, from before the days of recording, they play something and then they play it again. And then they move on to the next movement and play that and play it again. That's because you've never heard that before. You can't hear it again. And if they want you to hear it, they repeat it. And if you liked it, you would yell encore, encore. And that didn't mean they wanted an, you were asking them to play another song. It meant they wanted to hear that one over again because they were going to go home and they weren't going to be able to. Um, that's a world we've forgotten. Yeah, and it's and it's and it explains so much about older forms of music when you when you think about that. And it also, like we talked about on the Robert Johnson episode, you have this phenomenon of musicians as human jukeboxes. Where today, if you see somebody walking around the street with a guitar, you're like, oh God, I hope they don't start playing where I'm going. But back then, you know, Johnny Shines talks about how when he and Robert Johnson were traveling, they frequently made their living just by walking around their guitars, and people would ask them to play. And to be fair, as speaking as somebody who made his living a lot of my life walking around with a guitar, um, people still ask you to play. And But mostly, you know, it still is the world where they hope you'll play what they want to hear. And that's your job. I mean, your job is, you know, they may, you know, people will sometimes say play your favorite song, but they don't want to hear your favorite song. They want to hear their favorite song. That's the gig. Yeah. And and one thing that's interesting about this book is you basically start uh, around with John Philip Sousa and the song After the Ball. And a lot of histories of popular music in America actually start with Stephen Foster and kind of the, the uh, beginning of the commercial music publishing, because sheet music is really the first big musical technology that dramatically changes music. Why did you start when you did rather than 50 years earlier? Um, okay. Let's let let me roll back just a moment. No, sheet music is not the first. Sheet music is the first means of mass production. But musical technology, piano is musical technology, course, an organ yeah. is musical technology, a guitar is musical technology, and they all fundamentally reshape what you've got out there. And I made my choice to start at the moment that you can actually consume the sound, which is what records do. Um, with sheet music, you still are playing it. The only difference is you, if you're not going to play by ear, you now can buy something which will teach you a new song, but you still have to play it. And the moment where you start being able to buy sounds, that's new. 
and what we have meant ever after by popular music is you can consume the sounds themselves, not just you can consume something that will tell you how to make the sounds. That's a and, real difference. Yeah, it's an enormous difference. And and it's you talk about uh, John Philip Sousa, who is the band leader, you know, most remembered today for Stars and Stripes Forever and marching band music. Um, but he also is credited with introducing, you know, one of the first big sheet music hits or one of the biggest sheet music hits of the period after the ball because he played it at the Chicago World's Fair. But Sousa was sort of an alarmist about this technology, had, had an essay about mechanical music. Yeah. And what was he afraid of? He was afraid that people would stop making music. I mean, that was his main fear. And he was right. I mean, he is, you know, his nightmare is that, you know, instead of people singing to their children, they'll put on records for the children to listen to. And that instead of having a village band that everybody will get together and play in and, and have parties with, that they'll just put on records of somebody they've never met. His, his fear is that a whole that music has been the glue that connected people and that instead it's just going to be this thing that people will turn on and off he hadn't got as paranoid as the time we're living in now where people actually use music as a way of shutting out the world around them he couldn't even imagine that things getting that bad yeah it's it's uh it's it's almost dystopian sometimes, you know, when you get on the bus or walk around in public and everybody's got their headphones in or people are having conversations and you're two feet away from them and they're, you know, talking on their cell phone. And But Sousa, it seems, yeah, he was definitely right about that. And and sometimes, you know, after reading your book, I come away with this impression of the 20th century as this period when you still had enough musicians who had made their livings as human jukeboxes. And so they were forced to be versatile and they were forced to engage with every new hit style that came along. And you talk about, you know, whether you're Lawrence Welk having to deal with what Count Basie is doing because people were requesting that at your gigs or Count Basie having to deal with what Lawrence Welk is doing because people are requesting that at your gigs. Talk about that process a little bit. Well, I mean, that was just what the job was. I, I mean, it's really not more complicated than that. It's it's that you were expected, if you were a pop dance band, to play whatever was on the radio. And I mean, you know, Buddy Guy, the, the uh, Chicago blues guy, he talks about, you know, when he was starting out in Chicago, he said you'd walk into a bar and the jukebox would be there and and you could look on the jukebox and see what the 10 most requested records were and that's what people wanted to hear they wanted you to get on stage and play the top 10 records on the jukebox and you know that's just what a dance band was it was a band that could play you the current hits and not just dance bands you know it's what a cocktail lounge pianist was it's what any professional musician pretty much was. I mean, they were exceptions. You know, if you were a polka band, you weren't expected to know all the current hits, but you would have some of those in your repertoire. I mean, if you were a a Mexican Norteño band, you were still expected to be able to play in the mood. And and those two genres you talk about are actually very closely related. I mean, uh, Norteño, to me, 
the polka tradition survives through the Latin culture, the Mexican culture that's that's kept the accordions, that's kept the umpa beat going, and and but back back to the point in the book, I think one of the key points of this is the Beatles grew up in that tradition, playing Absolutely. in Hamburg for hours and hours, and yet ten years later, performers like Emerson, like well, Emerson Lincoln Palmer is a bad example, but but you know, pure seventies group would not have had to have had that experience. The younger people might not have. There were still people growing up doing some of that. I mean, it, it's a mix. In any 70s band that had horns, the horn players had probably still grown up playing in their high school band and then playing wedding gigs and then had been able to get out and join a rock band. But they probably still had those skills. The guitar player probably didn't. And and what was lost when that change happened? Um, first of all, let me just backtrack a tiny bit and just say, I am always hesitant to talk in terms of loss because we always, you know, what I like to talk about is change because you always, every single change, you have winners and losers and things that are lost and gained. And I may feel bad about one loss and one gain, but somebody else is going to be on the other side of that. So having said that, um, you lose versatility. You lose simply the fact that people have these extra skills that they may not even like, but they can access them when they need them. And that's going to affect what else they do. And you have the fact that people have been forced, like it or not, to be aware of what other people are listening to, which I think is healthy. I mean, I still grew up in the world of top 40 radio. I didn't grow up in a world where you had, you know, the rap on one station and and the the white grunge band on another station and the smooth jazz on a third station. I grew up in a world where the most popular records were all played back to back. And it meant that, you know, if I wanted to hear the new Rolling Stones or the new, or you know, if I wanted to hear Do It Till You're Satisfied by BT Express, I also had to hear Harry Goddam Chapin or Jim Croce. Um, you couldn't escape it. And <laughs> I wasn't, happy about that you know if i had if i never hear cats in the cradle again i'm a happy man but i knew what everybody who was listening to popular music was listening to and that's not true anymore nowadays people can be in their bubble and with music as with politics as with all sorts of other things i think we're getting more and more isolated from one another and i personally don't think that's a good thing and I want to go beyond the book while I've got you here, because the book was published about, what, nine years ago. And since then, we've seen another shift from music that you consume and own to music that you rent. You know, you see you see the heads of, of the various musical publishers, unions and stuff talking about now that we've moved to a service model of music. And to me, this is the biggest change in music technology since we shifted from sheet music when you played the music yourself to records when you list consume someone else's performance now we're shifting 
from owner consumers to renter consumers? Um, you know, that's an interesting one. I think that you, to some extent, um, are not describing the reality because you, like me, are a music nerd and you bought music. But most people listen to the radio. And in what you're calling renting, I, I mean, you know, the, the stream, you can control your stream, you can curate your stream, you can have more of an individual stream now. But streaming music is what most people have done since 1925. The number of people who mostly listen to stuff they chose and bought, it's always been a minority. Even during the big CD boom of the 90s? I think so. Huh. I think it, I, my guess is if, if you ask people who are, quote, into music, they were buying music. But most people, you know, they listened to the radio in their car and they turned on the television when they got home. Yeah. I, that's it's hard to argue with that. And okay, now let's pull it back to the book. And we talked about John Philip Sousa, but the next big move was Ragtime, which uh, is the first musical style that probably has any currency, partly because of the Ragtime revival in the '70s and the soundtrack of The Sting and Scott Joplin being revived. But you make an interesting point about it that even though this music swept the country and it was acknowledged that it was an African American form of music, you say this is the last time that one of these forms of music would sweep the country without people wanting to be black, white people wanting to be black or imitate black styles. They listen to the music, but they retain their identity. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that happened. And that uh, huh, that's a complicated one. I don't have an easy answer to that. It's, it's not purely racial. I mean, a lot of what's happening there is the de democratization of culture that even if they don't want to listen to white to black styles um the idea that if you're young you want to listen to working class styles you know that it may not be black but if it's not black it's james dean or marlon brando or humphrey bogart um or Al Pacino, or whatever. Uh, I don't know who the... I'm not even thinking straight about current stars. Bradley Cooper would be as close as I could get. But. Whoever. But in any case, the, the point I'm just saying is that the young people... The idea that young people, instead of dreaming of being lords and ladies, dream of being street toughs, is an, it was a new thing. And the music went along with that. And blackness is the ultimate streetness. You know, we we use the word urban as a synonym for black now. And that was a huge shift. And part of that shift was simply the shift from black meaning country to black meaning city. And that's the Great Migration. I mean, the association of black, what most people thought of in America, white people, when they thought of black people up until the 1930s or 40s, 
if you said, you know, what's what's the typical black person? They were still imagining Uncle Tom's cabin and somebody out on a cotton plantation. And the shift from black not meaning country to black meaning the most city part of the city is a huge part of it. Yeah, and, and I I think that there's a, probably a book to be written about the shift from where Northerners didn't find black people threatening, Northern whites, because they were on a safely tucked away in the South, whereas the South was this twisted culture with this terrible fear of slave uprisings. But that sort of turns on its head when African-Americans migrate to the North and they remain the other in American society and are frightened. But I want to talk about... Um, um, excuse me. I, yeah. I have to interrupt that one. Go, go for it. Um, white Southerners, whatever one says about the South and the North, white Southerners were and continue to be, as a general thing, more comfortable around black people than white Northerners. Oh, absolutely. That has always been true. Yeah. I'm a Texan myself and know this this absolutely true. But culturally, there's definitely a dynamic of wariness of Nat Turner. I mean, it's just hard to see minstrel music happening uh, in Atlanta rather than in the five points of New York, as I was trying to get at. Um, uh, that's because in Atlanta, they actually hired real black people, not white people in blackface. Yeah. And and one thing, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course. And and uh, and why would you? Yeah. And I guess that's probably the dilemma of, of, so much of of musical integra integration. I mean, you can read these quotes from Mick Jagger and Brian Jones, like in 1963, saying, "Who would ever want to hear an R&B song written by an Englishman? You know, why would you want to listen to black?" to white people imitating black music instead. But, you know, people, obviously white people like to listen to white musicians first and foremost, no matter what style they're aping. Not going to go with obviously. A lot of white people are buying Beyonce right now and we're buying Motown back in Mick Jagger's day. But anyway, you wanted to take this to somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and, and this is a lesson to me not to try to improvise my thinking when I'm talking to an expert. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know when you open the picture section of this book the first picture is this sheet music cover called when Sousa comes to coontown yeah. and it's filled with what to our eyes are just hideously offensive racial caricatures and the yeah. title of the song is as a slur and then but in the in the corner of the poster it says sung with great success by Williams and Walker who are these handsome very well dressed african american men and and it's interesting to me that these these are already urban, sophisticated African-Americans, and they're popular enough that the sheet music producer wants to be linked with them, and yet is totally comfortable with this insanely racist uh, iconography. What was going on there, and and is is this music still worth listening to? I mean, is it so polluted by the racism of the time that we should be ignoring it, or should it be celebrated as part of our musical heritage? Um, okay, let's take those. Those are two very different questions. Um, what's happening is that <laughs> selling to white people is where the money is then, now and tomorrow. And plenty of black musicians have tried to, as we say, cross over and sell to the white market 
And Williams and Walker were very prominent in that. And at the same time, were very prominent in trying to get away from the most obvious stereotypes. And they were successful up to a point, but looked at back from now, it's you, what we tend to notice is how many of the stereotypes are still there. What people noticed in their time was the idea of when Sousa comes to Coontown is actually kind of funny. It's it's not just way down upon the Swanee River. It's we're already dealing with an urban black audience getting the hottest white band of that time to play for them. So it's getting away from a stereotype. But yes, you look at that cartoon on the cover. And to us, what we see is is that the stereotype is there. And that's why I wanted that there, because it's such a complicated image. It has all these different things in it. Yeah, and that's fa- go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go uh, ahead, because I've already forgotten what the second half of the question is. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, uh, somebody like Burt Williams really fascinates me. His partner, Walker, passed away fairly young, but Williams went on to have – quite a career and was, you know, in a lot of ways, the first inter- African-American entertainment superstar in American history. And yet this is a guy who performed in blackface, which is so just hard to fathom from the, our vantage point today that a black man would actually paint up in blackface uh, to be popular. And yet... Um, okay, stop. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Um, the... I realize that this question is an oversimplification, but I... L- always like to throw it out there. What color makeup should a black clown wear? Exactly. A uh, white uh, clown puts on white face. What color makeup should a black clown wear? Should they pretend they're not black and put on white face? And the answer is the th- whole question has been contaminated by racism. But for a clown to put on makeup is not something unique to black clowns. An excellent point. And, and uh, just so much to unpack. And, and the other irony that I got from this is, is uh, that the song, All Coons Look Alike to Me, which when, you first, when I first heard that title, I mean, you know, it sounds like something the Ku Klux Klan would have commissioned. It was actually written by a black man. It was written by a black man who regretted it ever after because people did hear that title as explicitly racist. Um, I mean, the lyric was the girlfriend basically saying all men are the same to me. You can't, you know, I don't give a damn about you. You're nothing special. But it was phrased in racial terms and he regretted it ever after. And the irony of that is he was cleaning up the original title because he first heard it in a whorehouse as all pimps look alike to me. That's one of the sad ironies. That yes, all pimps look alike to me. History would remember him much more kindly. But it would never have been released. (laughs) But it would never have been released. So that's that's where life gets complicated. Yep. Yep. So I wanna I wanna move on to one other pairing in the in the photo section in the middle of the book. James Reese Europe, the yeah. uh, band leader, on the page next to uh, Irene and Vernon Castle, the, the white dance leaders. 
uh, dance teachers and popularizers. Explain their relationship and the dynamic and, and, and how the two of them play sure. together. Sure. Um, that's a little complicated because most people can't imagine the fact that until the teens, nobody went dancing. I mean, you want to go dancing tonight? That was a sentence that made no sense. Dances were private affairs, and you could go to a dance. There's a dance tonight at the, you know, the so-and-sos are giving a dance, or there's a dance tonight at the Polish-American club. But there was no such thing as a dance hall where you just went to dance. And that starts happening as young women start moving into the city and having their own sources of income. And the castles start teaching social dancing in this moment. And Vernon Castle, who was English, um, was really in love with that hot new American sound and felt that black bands were the only ones who really got those rhythms right. And so he insisted on using a black band and the best black band in New York was James Reese Europe. And so there's this moment in the teens where the richest families in New York are insisting on having black bands because that's become the fashion. Uh, yeah. And it's the reading your books, the granularity and the nuance just always emerges. Things are always much more complicated than we tend to simplify. And you even talk about uh, in, in the Escaping the Delta that there's a point when music becomes segregated and that before a certain point, really before the commercial record industry comes along, music hadn't been so segregated. No, and, and you know, it, that's one thing that changing technologies kept shifting. I mean, even in the 1950s, you have this moment still where the records are arriving in blank sleeves and people don't know that this, whether the singer is white or black. So the Charlie Pride can have three country hits before anybody who might not want to hear a black singer ever thinks about the fact that this country singer might be black. And at the same way, other way around, Elvis Presley's getting on R&B stations where it isn't yet occurring to them that this guy might be white. Or Buddy Holly playing at the Apollo and the audience gasping because they'd heard his records and couldn't believe And when you hear Buddy Holly now, you're like, how could people think this was black? But, you know, at the time, uh, it definitely seemed that way. And and then flipping through, I want to I wanna talk about another figure that was enormously influential and popular at the time, but that is really forgotten, Mitch Miller of Columbia Records. Um and you talk yeah. a lot about the guy basically invented the modern recording process, the produced record. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's and I should say, you know, to the extent that he ever became famous, he was famous for these dopey records that nobody cares about anymore and that nobody much cared about then. His important work was behind the scenes as a producer. And, yeah, he had this brilliant idea that records were not just, I guess the word is records, you know, we're not just, it was not just the record of a live performance. It was not just, I like this band and I'd like to take a copy of it home with me. So I'll take home a record of it. That records could exist 
independently of anything that could ever be performed live. And that was a weird, weird new idea. But when he had it, it meant it was exactly like what happened to movies as compared to plays. It was this realization, if you're not just filming a play, then you can do anything. And that's what he began doing. He began taking a song from here, getting a singer from somewhere else, putting together a group of musicians who didn't know each other, had never played together, and sounded maybe weird and quirky and interesting together. You know, like a harpsichord plus a saxophone plus a steel guitar plus a swing rhythm section. And then you put a singer on top of that. And these records just sounded like nothing anybody had heard. And of course, that's how anybody makes a pop record by the 1960s and 70s. But he invented that idea around 1950. And it, it simply changes what we mean. Um, by and a also would include things like the sound of a whip cracking, uh, you know. Right, and, sound effects, anything. Absolutely. And, and, and very much George Martin's uh, entire contribution as a producer of the Beatles, he's very much a student of Mitch Miller, or a follower of Mitch Miller. By the time he comes along, though, that's become standard. I mean, by the time George Martin comes along, you've had Liber and Stoller putting together the Drifters records, which have sound, you know, the Coasters records, you know, are full of sound effects and weird instruments. And then you get string sections and all of that. That was already around. Um, I mean, George Martin was good at it. But he was following the lead of a lot of people in the United States who were doing it. I mean, all the pop records, you know, the Shangri-Las, leader of the pack, you know, that had simply become how you made a hit record. Yeah, it's, it's probably better to say without Mitch Miller, you would have no George Martin rather than that Martin was an acolyte. But still, the guy, and I think the guy, I was first introduced to him as sort of a, a a villain as an enemy of rock and roll reading people like Dave Marsh growing up at what, you know, Mitch Miller was only remembered as somebody who hated rock and roll. And then maybe you'd hear about him as the guy who Frank Sinatra hated because he was trying to make Frank Sinatra sing good night, Irene, or did make Frank Sinatra sing good Irene, but, and, and much worse records than that. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and it's, it's a really fascinating character who made this enormous contribution, but had a very cynical attitude of, about what, the pop music audience wanted and needed. And yeah, no, I mean, the thing about Mitch Miller was he was probably the best classical oboe player in the United States. And that was what he loved. I mean, he was an absolute top. I mean, he, he played on the Charlie Parker and Strings album. I mean, he was the first call oboe player in New York. He'd played with Toscanini. And... He also and and you know he was completely cynical about the pop records. He considered them trash, but he knew how to make that kind of trash, and and he was a genius. Um, that doesn't mean the records were great. One of the things I keep saying in my book is is timely and timeless are both things we tend to say as compliments, but they're the opposite of each other. I mean, his records were the sound of their moment, and once their moment was over, they, they're of no interest. 
And that brings you another question I had for you. In the process of writing this book, I assume you listen and writing both of these books, Escaping the Delta, as well as How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. You you listen to a lot of things you hadn't listened to before, or hadn't listened to much. Yes. Out of all this stuff that you've listened to, I mean, are there any Paul Whiteman records that have made your permanent playlist? Uh, yeah, um, not many, and and you know he's not. That's not my favorite sound on earth. But yeah, if, if uh, Paul Whiteman's from Monday on. Uh, I think it's a terrific record. I really enjoy that record. But, I mean, there are other things I discovered during that project I'm much more excited about. I mean, the Shirelles. I had no idea how great the Shirelles were. Yeah, that's a and, yeah. and that just completely, I, I keep listening to the Shirelles. Um, I had not paid attention to Shout by the Isley Brothers. I mean, there were lots of things that excited me that I had not known about. And that was, you know, the exercise of that book in a way was simply to force myself to listen to all that stuff. And the other thing is, you know, some of it um, I will never listen to again, and I'm perfectly okay with that. But when I was writing the book, if you immerse yourself in the music of a period, um, there's stuff in it that you realize how exciting it sounded then. And that still is exciting for you as long as you are sort of doing the method acting thing and putting your head back in the 1920s. Once your head gets back to 2018, okay, you don't need to listen to that. But it still can be exciting when you are doing that exercise of, of going like, okay, how did this sound then? Yeah. And one of the things I'm fascinated about, about our current moment is how people will listen. You know, this is the first time we've had access to basically the entire history of recorded music at our fingertips. I mean, if I'm reading about music and I hear about an obscure album from the twenties or the forties or the sixties, and if I can't find it in 15 minutes, I'm furious, you know, and I wonder going forward, how much of future music is going to be sort of sifting through the rubble of the recording music era and how much of it is going to be new innovations and listening to new music? Uh, yeah. And, and yeah, no, I mean, look, all of these, how much will it matter to most people? I mean, I, I think that one thing that's going on is that a lot of stuff that was important in the past simply hasn't isn't important anymore. I mean, there's an interesting thing happening now where people who go out dancing um, don't expect to be able to hear that when they go home again. And that's something really odd to me. I mean, I grew up in a time where if you went out dancing and heard something you loved, you expected to be able to go to the store and buy it. But now people go out and they listen to dance mixes and it has nothing to do with what they may listen to at home or expect to have on their iPhone. The, you know, they go out dancing and it's the mix. It's almost taking us back to the old days of the live dance bands in a way in that you just don't think of that as something that that you can carry in your pocket anymore. It's just a different kind of music than the music you consume at home. 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and thinking about it, I've only known one. Per- I've known many EDM fans. I've only known one person who would go and get CDs of DJ mixes that had been recorded live. And and that's a fascinating take. One other thing I want to come back to is you frequently talk about, I believe, your nephew, uh, and and that you were sort of shocked that your young nephew was listening to Beatles music at parties with his friends. And in the end, yeah. you're like, I'm relieved to hear, to tell you, you know, by the end of the book that my nephew is now listening to hip hop with his friends. Right. He's grown out of that. And I have to say his younger brother, who was two years younger, when I asked him, he was like, Beatles records at parties? Really? Zeke <laughs> used to listen to Beatles records at parties? I mean, he not only hadn't done it, he couldn't believe his older brother had ever done it. It seemed so weird to him. So that was a moment. But, you know, I just was hearing, uh, I just on Facebook yesterday, somebody was talking about driving their son to college and him insisting on listening to Neil Young's Harvest on the drive, the kid. Um, Yeah, that feels very weird to me. Uh, And I very much think that's that's a a middle class white kid thing. Yeah, I, I, I got back and forth as to whether or not that's a generational shift that we'll see again, like. Because I could sort of argue that like Irving Berlin, who wrote hit songs in every decade from the, the teens to the 40s, is sort of analogous to Paul McCartney, who comes along at, at the be- early part of the next era and is still selling out concerts and, and a constant, you know, very well-known celebrity today in 2018. Is there going to be a generational shift like there was in the 60s when the boomers came along and just didn't want to know about Irving Berlin or anybody from the past? Do you think we have another... Uh, revisionist generation coming up ahead of us that's going to say no more Beatles ever again? Um, Well, two answers to that. First of all, what do you think punk rock was? Well, an attempt, but it didn't succeed. Well, none of these attempts succeed if what you mean is that the old people stop listening to it. And, you know, I think that there has been a reaction to hip-hop that made a lot of white kids and some black kids. I mean, you know, black kids started, uh, you know, I, I remember my mind being completely blown hearing some black kids listening to Sinatra records, um, you know, just like 15 years ago. Um, you know, th- but that that always, there's always been some of that. But, but do you I think, think that, go ahead. I, yeah, no, what I was going to say is I don't think we are ever going to have a mass zeitgeist like we had in the 60s or in the 20s again in terms of music because everybody now can just listen to whatever they want on their telephone and you don't have group consumption in the same way you did then. I mean, people may be excited about the new Beyonce album, but it doesn't rule the atmosphere in the same way. Um, You know, in the sense that I can walk down the street and not hear it in a way that was not possible in earlier eras. Yeah, even as recently as the 90s, my 70-year-old mother at the time couldn't get away from Kurt Cobain. She had to she knew who Kurt Cobain was and and had heard Smells Like Teen Spirit whether she wanted to or not. And today it's you know, I did a poll recently of my brothers who are in their 60s and 50s, none of them had even heard of Beyoncé's Lemonade, you know. And 
so so that's one thing. But I want to ask one last question. Hip hop, really, I mean, it emerged in the in the late seventies, peaks, you know, as a form evolves rapidly in the late eighties, early nineties. There isn't a clear successor to that. Do you think this process of musical formal evolution that we saw throughout the twentieth century is that over? Um. <laughs> Uh, look, the short answer is historians are no better at predicting the future than anybody else. <laughs> I can't imagine what would happen that would be as dramatic as the shift from live bands to produced hip hop with rap over it. I mean, I just can't imagine what you could come up with that would sound as unlike anything of all the things we've heard as Sugar Hill Gang sounded unlike anything we'd ever heard when it came out in whatever that was, 79, 78. Um, I mean, I just feel like nothing could possibly surprise us as much as that surprised us. But... That's just another way of saying, you know, if if they find it, it'll surprise us. Yeah, uh, there might be some kid in China right now growing up playing classical music, uh, but I don't see it. Hip hop, or yeah, but yeah. It's hard. No, I, I mean, I think by now we've been bombarded by such a range of sounds that it's very hard to come up with something that sounds a hundred percent new. And if you did it would be impossible to make it permeate the world the way a record could still permeate the world in 1978. Excellent point. And we'll wrap up there. Thanks so much for joining us and, and hopefully we can have you on the show again sometime. That was Elijah Wald, the author of How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Next week, author Adam Caress joins Nate to discuss his book, The Day Alternative Music Died, the struggle between art and money for the soul of rock. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll is available from Oxford University Press and can be found wherever fine books are sold. You still have time for a tempting snack. Are you sick and tired of movie review shows that are just missing something? Do you need more history? Do you need more laughs? Do you need more meandering, insane ramblings than most movie shows provide? Well, then I've got the show for you. Real Rock, with me, the rock and roll reverend Andy King. On Real Rock, we look to dissect rock and roll movies from not only a historical view, but also through a critical and oftentimes personal view. Every episode of Real Rock is a little different, with occasional parodies, sometimes special guests, and a lot of unhinged rants. So pass the popcorn, pass the vape, and hit the lights. We're going to the movies. Listen to Real Rock wherever you catch your pods.
If you're looking to get a new car, you could really cut expenses by bundling your car and renter's insurance with Progressive. Sure, you love your old car, but you know it's not normal to give instructions on how to open the window. It should be self-explanatory, but it's not. And notice how when you're in other people's cars, you can feel cushion in the seats? That's pretty nice, right? No, it's just normal. So bundle your renters and car insurance with Progressive and put the savings toward a new car. It's time. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 